Section 34 of Come Rack, Come Roop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Come Rack, Come Roop by Robert Hugh Benson. Book 4, Chapter 7, Part 1. There was a vast crowd in the marketplace at Michaelmas to see the judges come partly because there was always excitement at the visible majesty of the law, partly because the tale of one at least of the prisoners had roused interest. It was a dramatic tale. He was first a seminary priest and a Derbyshire man. Many remembered him riding as a little lad beside his father. He was next a runaway to Reims for religion's sake when his father conformed. Third, he had been taken in the house of Mistress Manners, to whom, report said, he had once been betrothed. Last, he had been taken by his father himself. All this furnished matter for a quantity of conversation in the taverns, and it was freely discussed by the sentimental whether or no, if the priest yielded and conformed, he would yet find Mistress Manners willing to wed him. Signs of the Armada rejoicings still survived in the marketplace as the judges rode in. Streamers hung in the sunshine, rather bedraggled after so long, from the roof and pillars of the guild hall, and a great smoke-blackened patch between the conduit and the cross marked where the ox had been roasted. There was a deal of loyal cheering as the procession went by, for these splendid personages on horseback stood to the mob for the power that had repelled the enemies of England, and her grace's name was received with enthusiasm. Behind the judges and their escorts came a cavalcade of riders, gentlemen, grooms, servants, and agents of all sorts. But not a Derby man noticed or recognized a thin gentleman who rode modestly in the midst with a couple of personal servants on either side of him. It was not until the visitors had separated to the various houses and inns where they were to be lodged, and the mob was dispersing home again, that it began to be rumoured everywhere that Mr. Topcliffe had come again to Derby on a special mission. Part 2 The tidings came to Marjorie as she leaned back in her chair in Mr. Bedell's parlour and listened to the last shoutings. She had been in town now three days. Ever since the capture she had been under guard in her own house till three days ago. Four men had been billeted upon her, not indeed by the orders of Mr. Audrey, since Mr. Audrey was in no condition to control affairs any longer, but by the direction of Mr. Columbell, who had himself ridden out to take charge at Booth's Edge, when the news of the arrest had come, with the prisoner himself to the city. It was he, too, who had seen to the removal of Mr. Audrey a week later, when he had recovered from the weaknesses caused by the fit sufficiently to travel as far as Derby. For it was thought better that the magistrate who had effected the capture should be accessible to the examining magistrates. It was, of course, lamentable, said Mr. Columbell, that father and son should have been brought into such relations, and he would do all that he could to relieve Mr. Audrey from any painful task in which they could do without him. But Her Grace's business must be done, 
and he had had special messages from my lord shrewsbury himself that the prisoner must be dealt with sternly it was believed wrote my lord that mr albin as he called himself had a good deal more against him than the mere fact of being a seminary priest it was thought that he had been involved in the babington plot and had at least once had access to the queen of the scots since the fortunate failure of the conspiracy all this then marjorie knew from mr bedell who seemed always to know everything but it was not until the evening on which the judges arrived that she learned the last and extreme measures that would be taken to establish these suspicions she had ridden openly to derby so soon as the news came from there that for the present she might be set at liberty the lawyer came into the darkening room as the square outside began to grow quiet and marjorie opened her eyes to see who it was he said nothing at first but sat down close beside her he knew she must be told but he hated the telling he carried a little paper in his hand he would begin with that little bit of good news first he said to himself well mistress he said i have the order at last we are to see him to-night it is for mr bedell and a friend she sat up and a little vitality came back to her face for a moment she almost looked as she had looked in the early summer to-night she said and when he will not be brought before my lords for three or four days yet there is a number of cases to come before this it will give us those two or three days at least to prepare our case he spoke heavily and dejectedly up to the present he had been utterly refused permission to see his client and though he knew the outlines of the affair well enough he knew very little of the thousand details on which the priest would ask his advice it was a hopeless affair it appeared to the lawyer in any case and now with this last piece of tidings he knew that there was indeed nothing to be said except words of encouragement he listened with the same heavy air to mistress manners as she said a word or two as to what must be spoken of to robin she was very quiet and collected and talked to the point but he said nothing what is the matter sir she said he lifted his eyes to hers there was still enough light from the windows for him to see her eyes and that there was a spark in them that had not been there just now and it was for him to extinguish it he gripped his courage i have had worse news than all he said her lips moved and a vibration went over her face her eyes blinked as at a sudden light yes he put his hand tenderly on her arm you must be courageous he said it is the worst news that ever came to me it concerns one who is come from london to-day and rode in with my lords she could not speak but her great eyes entreated him to finish her misery yes he said still pressing his hand on to her arm yes it is mr topcliffe who is come he felt the soft muscles harden like steel there was no sound except the voices talking in the square and the noise of footsteps across the pavements he could not look at her then he heard her draw a long breath and breathe it out again and her taut muscles relaxed we we are all in christ's hands she said we must tell him 
Part three. It appeared to the girl as if she were moving on a kind of set stage, with every movement and incident designed beforehand, in a play that was itself a kind of destiny. Above all, when she went at last into Robin's cell and saw him standing there, and found it to be that in which so long ago she had talked with Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert. The great realities were closing round her, as irresistible as wheels and bars. There was scarcely a period in her life, scarcely a voluntary action of hers for good or evil, that did not furnish some part of this vast machine in whose grip both she and her friend were held so fast. No calculation on her part could have contrived so complete a climax. Yet hardly a calculation that had not gone astray from that end to which she had designed it. It was as if some monstrous and ironical power had been beneath and about her all her life long, using those thoughts and actions that she had intended in one way to the development of another. First, it was she that had first turned her friend's mind to the life of a priest. Had she submitted to natural causes, she would have been his wife nine years ago. They would have been harassed, no doubt, and troubled, but no more. It was she again that had encouraged his return to Derbyshire. If it had not been for that, and for the efforts she had made to do what she thought good work for God, he might have been sent elsewhere. It was in her house that he had been taken, and in the very place she had designed for his safety. If she had but sent him on, as he wished, back to the hills again, he might never have been taken at all. These and a score of other thoughts had raced continually through her mind. She felt as if she were responsible for the manner of his taking, and for the horror that it had been his father who had accomplished it. If she had said more or less in the hall of that dark morning, if she had not swooned, if she had said bravely, It is your son, sir, who is here, all might have been saved. And now it was Topcliffe who was come, and she knew all that this signified the very man at whose mere bodily presence she had sickened in the court of the tower. And last it was she who had to tell Robin of this. So tremendous, however, had been the weight of these thoughts upon her, crowned and clinched, so to say, by finding that the priest was even in the same cell as that in which she had visited the traitor, that there was no room any more for bitterness. Even as she waited, with Mr. Bedell behind her, as the gaoler fumbled with the keys, she was aware that the last breath of resentment had been drawn. It was indeed a monstrous power that had so dealt with her. It was none other than the will of God, plain at last. She knelt down for the priest's blessing without speaking as the door closed, and Mr. Bedell knelt behind her. Then she rose and went forward to the stool and sat upon it. He was hardly changed at all. He looked a little white and drawn in the wavering light of the flambeau, but his clothes were orderly and clean, and his eyes as bright and resolute as ever. "'It is a great happiness to see you,' he said, smiling, and then no more compliments. "'And what of my father?' he added instantly. She told him. Mr. Audrey was in Derby, still sick from his fit. 
He was in Mr. Columbell's house. She had not seen him. Robin, she said, and she used the old name, utterly unknowing that she did so. We must speak with Mr. Bedell presently about your case, but there is a word or two I have to say first. We can have two hours here, if you wish it. Robin put his hand behind him on to the table and jumped lightly, so that he sat on it, facing her. If you will not sit on the table, Mr. Bedell, I fear there is only that block of wood. He pointed to a block of a tree set on end. It served him, laid flat as a pillow. The lawyer went across to it. The judges, I hear, are come tonight, said the priest. She bowed. Yes, but your case will not be up for three or four days yet. Why, then, I shall have time? She lifted her hand sharply a little to check him. You will not have much time, she said, and paused again. A sharp contraction came and went in the muscles of her throat. It was as if her band gripped her there, relaxed and gripped again. She put up her own hand desperately to tear at her collar. Why, but, began the priest, she could bear it no more. His resolute cheerfulness, his frank astonishment, were like knives to her. She gave one cry. Topcliffe is come. Topcliffe she cried. Then she flung her arm across the table and dropped her face on it. No tears came from her eyes, but tearing sobs shook and tormented her. It was quite quiet after she had spoken. Even in her anguish she knew that. The priest did not stir from where he sat a couple of feet away. Only the swinging of his feet ceased. She drove down her convulsions. They rose again. She drove them down once more. Then the tears surged up, her whole being relaxed, and she felt a hand on her shoulder. Marjorie, said the grave voice, as steady as it had ever been, Marjorie, this is what we looked for, is it not? Topcliffe is come, is he? Well, let him come, he or another. It is for this that we have all looked since the beginning. Christ his grace is strong enough, is it not? It hath been strong enough for many, at least. And he will not surely take it from me who need it so much. He spoke in pauses, but his voice never faltered. I have prayed for that grace ever since I have been here. He hath given me great peace in this place. I think he will give it me to the end. You must pray, my, my child. You must not cry like that. She lifted her agonized face for a moment, then she let it fall again. It seemed as if he knew the very thoughts of her. This all seems very perfect to me, he went on. It was yourself who first turned me to this life, and you knew surely what you did. I knew at least all the while, I think, and I have never ceased to thank God. And it was through your hands that the letter came to me to go to Fotheringay, and it was in your house that I was taken and it was Mr. Maine's beads that they found on me when they searched me here, the pair of beads you gave me. Again she stared at him, blind and bewildered. He went on steadily. And now it is you again who bring me the first news of my passion. It is yourself, first and last, under God, that have brought me all these graces and crosses. And I thank you with all my heart. But you must pray for me to the end and after it. 
End of Book 4, Chapter 7 Recording by James Carson